Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I performed somewhere every single week and I put up a sketch show like every month and constantly hustling and out there and trying to get people to see your stuff. And that's the only way it can happen. Um, You can't just sit around in your apartment and go, how come no one's looking at my stuff? Or how come, you know, how can I put my stuff into the right person's hands? You just got to make stuff. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very excited today for my guest, Scott Ackerman, who you're going to find out a lot about. This guy is a force in the entertainment business and has pretty much held every single title there is in the entertainment business, from writer to host to director to producer to actor, to entrepreneur, to creator. Just amazing what he's done to just utilize every cylinder in his engine. And the things he's been involved with have just been the highest level of talent in the business. And I'm excited that you're about to hear what he has to say because he really, really blew me away. And before I get started, I just want to let you know that I am so grateful to all of you. I know I sound like a broken record, but this podcast has been more than I ever thought uh, it could ever be. And I'm a positive person. You have all been so supportive, so great, and I can't thank you all enough for all your support. And I also want to give a shout out to the team at iTunes. They have just been so supportive of the show. I'm talking about Steve Wilson and James Boggs. I'm so, so happy that they have seen something in this show that maybe I was shocked that they would see because they've been involved in so many different things and there's 375,000 podcasts in the world. And to have these guys take an interest in our show and take an interest in all of you and and how supportive you've been of the show and to 
help advertise it and help push it and help let everybody know that it exists, I can't even begin to thank them enough. And so I normally do this podcast where I actually sit down across from my guest and I look at them and I don't know what I'm going to say. And I just tell a story or something that's on my mind when I look at them for the first time, like an improvisational kind of thing. But I knew I was going to be interviewing Scott and I knew I'd been wanting to have him on the show for over three years. And I just wanted to have every minute possible when I was at the Montreal Just for Last Festival to sit down with him. And I just couldn't bear to take any time away from it by doing any kind of cold open. And so I didn't record one. And so today I'm actually overseas. I've been in Japan, Thailand, China. And I thought, what better way to do a cold open than to just sit down in my spare time here and listen to the interview and let you know what's on my mind. And as I listen to the interview that you're about to hear, the thing that struck me most about Scott is that he's a guy who is so accessible. He's a guy who, when he walked in the room, he was the kind of guy who you could tell why he was successful. You could understand how he was able to work with so many A-list stars. You could figure out why he was comfortable doing a episode of Between Two Firms, not only with the biggest stars in the world, but also with the President of the United States. He had this feeling about him, this aura, that let you know that everything was going to be okay, but also the kind of aura of a leader of men and women, a guy who you want at the helm of whatever you're doing if you want it to be successful. And when I got through with the interview and I said goodbye to him, when he left the room, I was actually drained because most people would think that when you sit down with somebody, well, how can you say you're drained? How is that possible? Are you drained in a bad way? But when you sit down with Scott Ackerman and you get to spend time with him, you're drained in a great way because the way he looks at the world and the way he went about his journey in the business, it expands your mind. It pushes your feelings of where you think you should be and how you can get there. And that's the best way I can have to describe it. And he's the kind of guy I can honestly say I've never really met anyone like him in my life. And I don't know if I'll ever meet anybody like him again. And I think the thing that impresses me so much about him is the fact that his navigational skills are amazing. He's able to deal with every different kind of personality, from Sean Penn to Sarah Silverman to Will Ferrell to Zach Galifianakis. Every nuance of every artist, 
he's able to tap into. And I think one of the greatest things I notice about him is the feeling that he can get the most out of anybody he works with. Whether he's directing a show or if he's just creating it. And so I think if I learned anything from sitting down with Scott and getting the chance to to talk with him for as long as I did that I could pass on to all of you is the fact that if you can just figure out in whatever job you're in of how to be able to mix with all different kinds of people, with all the different kinds of idiosyncrasies, but also maintain who you are as a person and maintain the strength to stick by your guns as to what you feel is the best way to handle any situation, but also knowing how to navigate within the people's minds and their creative thoughts and be able to lead without people feeling like they're being led. That's such a great quality and such a rare quality. And being around Scott, a guy who's done so many different things and created so many amazing relationships and so many people look to him as a guy who can do anything. That's all you want in your business life. Everybody in business that you work with wants to know that you're going to be able to navigate, that you're going to be able to deal with every different kind of client, but still keep the formula of what you need to keep, still keep the creative vision on track that you want to keep, but still in that way make every different personality feel validated, feel safe, feel comfortable, and feel like they're inspired. And that's what happens when Scott Ackerman is around. And if you can figure out a way in your business to create those situations and navigate like that, I can guarantee you, you'll have a great shot at having the kind of career that Scott Ackerman has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Let's go way, way back. If okay. If you don't mind. Sure. Take us back to where you grew up, your family life, the socioeconomic dynamic Ooh. there, what happened back then, the good, the bad, the ugly, 
And what was your first influence in wanting to get into the sh- entertainment business, specifically comedy? Right. Um, I grew up in Orange County, as you said, which is a pretty um, middle class, uh, some would say upper middle class, but I think we were in the lower of the upper middle class um, area. And uh, very, you know, super white and uh, religious family, conservative family, Republican um, and um, I remember, you know, I was kind of interested in performing. Uh, I was in plays and stuff like that. Um, and then when I was 13, I was, uh, I, I got my first girlfriend. And um, we would go back to her place to... It sounded like you purchased her the way you <laughs> yes. said that. Mail order bride. No, she... Uh, the the first girl I ever dated, we would after school go back to her place and like watch videos and stuff like that. And she, and she had Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I didn't know Monty Python. I didn't I'd heard of it certainly. It was on PBS at the time, but I didn't really know anything about it. So I watched Holy Grail and was blown away by it. And I was like, oh my god, this is so funny. Um, that was definitely one of the first things I remember in comedy. I also grew up watching Saturday Night Live reruns, the syndicated uh, reruns that they would turn into one hour from the 70s. Um, from 75 to 80, they would they syndicated those and would air them on like KCOP, I remember. So I would stay up and watch those. So SNL and Monty Python. And then in 1984, um, I started doing speech competitions um, in school, and speech competitions are like you know they have debate, they have um, things like dramatic, you know, people reading dramatic plays and stuff like that. So I would go and I would do like Monty Python stuff um, or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I would you know like kind of do impressions of Monty Python stuff, and I got pretty good at that. Um, but in 1984, um, I started watching David Letterman and that was like a big, just like sledgehammer to the face for me where I was just like, oh my God, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. I kind of changed my like entire personality. I, I already was kind of sarcastic, but I like drew heavy into irony and, and kind of started acting like a miniature David Letterman in a way of just like, you know, sarcastic and never taking anything seriously and and that that i think is those are the reasons that i wanted to definitely get into comedy that that really shaped my personality um once i actually did it in 95 um it was mainly because of two things it was because earlier that week um I had I, I went to go see Bob and David through some mutual friends. I went to go see one of their live shows that they were doing in order to get Mr. Show on the air. Um, and I was blown away by that because up till, up till then, most of the comedy I'd seen was very observational comedy. Um, and I, and I loved it. I loved Seinfeld growing up. Um, and you know, all of those great comedians in the eighties, you know, the Richard Jenny and Kevin Pollack and all those people, you know, I was really, uh, a big fan of all of them, but I never thought I could do that. I, in fact, tried when I was 18 in a comedy competition at my college. I tried to do observational comedy and, you know, did okay, but I was just like, this is not my sense of humor somehow. But when I saw Bob and David, I was like, holy shit, these guys are doing like my sense of humor. 
I couldn't believe it. It was like stuff that I was doing around like the restaurants I was working at, you know, like kind of weird, uh, offensive stuff. You know, it was like what I would do with my friends, you know? And I was like, holy shit, someone's actually doing what I do with my friends professionally. That's so crazy. And, and, and then I also saw the Andy Kaufman NBC special that they had made after his death. And I didn't know anything about Andy Kaufman other than he did Latka on taxi. And so to, to be given an education in what he did, those two influences just really made me go, I think, I think that, and, and my friend had invited me to do the comedy store. I said, I think that, yeah, I think we can do this, you know? And so I, I think those early performances that my partner and I gave were very much, um, Bob and David influenced and very much Andy Kaufman influenced. Okay. So you're influenced by that. You're going to college. Take us through the story of how you met your partner and the man who really together with you collaborated on so many amazing yeah. things. Cause fate is a very strange thing. Well, you know, it's, it is, it is fate in, in a certain way. And in a certain way, you just kind of find the people you like working with in every situation. I mean, when people ask me, they say, how do you get, how do you start in comedy? I basically say, well, move to where the comedy is and then find people that you're going to work with because those are the people that you'll work with for the rest of your life. You know, those are going to be the people that they, they go, well, don't you have to know someone? Like, how do I get my script into this person's hands? This famous, this person who's already famous hands. And I go, no, 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 you like, you guys are the people who will become the next generation of the famous people. You just got to continue to work. So I th- I think it was that I I um I met B J Porter uh, doing a play and um it was a play that we were all cast in and you were expected to write your own material and we had the first read through of stuff that people had written and I wrote a sketch for it it was a Christmas show I wrote a sketch for it um like a forties radio hour I wrote a sketch um, based on the gift of the of the Magi where um a uh woman cut off all of her hair to buy her husband a watch and um the the guy hadn't sold his watch fob or anything he was just like shocked that his wife was bald and was like could you please put on a hat um so anyway i wrote that and then um BJ wrote some, uh, I think he wrote three pieces that I really liked that were all very um, Bob Hope influenced. And Bob Hope was a big influence on me as well growing up. I was a big Bob Hope fan. And I was like, oh, wow, I'd never heard anyone write really, um, write their own Bob Hope style jokes. um, Because Bob Hope style jokes are very crafted very well. I just appreciated the craft. I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen an amateur writing professional level Bob Hope style jokes. It's just, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And how, and at 18 or 19 years old, how is anyone that interested in writing Bob Hope jokes? And then, you know, I talked to him a little bit about, we, we both met each other and we were both like, Hey, I liked what you did. And he said, Oh, I liked what you did. And I, I started talking to him about Bob Hope and he was a guy who like would watch Bob Hope movies and sort of memorize the jokes and figure out how they were put together and then sort of reverse engineer them and write his own kind of 
based on those and sort of and it was just really interesting to me that someone's mind could work that way you know um so we struck up a friendship and started writing stuff together um you know mainly plays and you know goofs uh at, at the college we were going to and then i moved away and 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 did um musical theater but um and he moved to los angeles from orange county and uh, you know it just was one of those kind of like faded things where um when my friend maleva um barbula who asked me to do the comedy store and hooked it up for me um she it was funny bj and i had written a pilot an hour drama because i was i was like a david mamet style playwright i thought who also on the side did these goofy things um she read that and was like oh this is awful um she goes but you're really funny in your personal life why can't you just like do comedy because she, she was roommates with Karen Kilgariff and she knew Bob and David and all these people. And I was like, I don't know. I don't think I could do comedy. And then I saw Bob and David do it and saw that Andy Kaufman thing and it all just like coalesced in my mind and went bing. And I said, okay, BJ, we got an invite to do the comedy store at the show that, you know, Bob and David perform at and Margaret Cho and Janine Garofalo and Andy Dick and all these people. And it was like, let's, let's do this, you know? And we came up with something we were going to do. And it just like like a thunderbolt kind of came of like, oh, wow, this is our sense of humor. Let's do this. And it went really well. And, you know, it just was it, and, you know, Bob was there at the second performance and, and said, oh, hey, it's really funny. You guys should write on my show, you know, and it, it just kind of all took off from there. It was like kind of just a, a coalescing of a bunch of different things happening, you know, that just kind of hit me of like, oh, Comedy, yes. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, and so you get a job on Bob and Dave's show, Mr. Show, and something that a lot of people don't know about writing and the WGA is it's great to get hired as a writer on the show. It's 50% as great when you get hired as a comedy team financially. That said... What's very interesting is they thought they could hire us as a team, and on a sketch show, you can't hire a team. Oh, that's right. And so they they told us we were being hired, I think, before they knew that they ha had to hire us separately and were kind of upset when they found out that they had, had to hire us separately. Most productions want to save money by hiring right. teams, at least one team on a production, and because you don't have to pay both, you have to pay them the same salary. I don't know why the rules are different for that, but yeah, it was one of those things where I think it could have upset the apple cart for us. Um, but they they went for it. And I, and I have to say, Bob really went to bat for us um, because I don't think David wanted to hire us. And um, in fact, after the season wrapped, I, I went out to drinks with David and he he sort of told me that he was like, Oh, you know, like I didn't really want to hire you, but you know, you were great. And thank you so much. You know, it was just one of those things where once I got in, it was like, I was very intimidated, very nervous. I, I remember saying to Andy Kindler, um, I was like, I, uh, I, I, I don't know why I recall this, but I was on the phone with him. And this was back when everyone called each other all the time. <laughs> and so I would have like half an hour conversations with Andy Kindler, which you don't do anymore, you know, for some reason, even though we all have phones, like now it'll go months without me talking to Andy. But at the time it was like, no big deal. Call up Andy Kindler and like talk to him for a half hour. Cause like you're sitting around your apartment and you know, 
And so I remember talking to Andy and I was like, I, um, I think I'm really good at writing jokes by myself on the computer if I think about them. And I thought I was like a craftsman or something. And I was like, I, I think I can do that. And what I'm really nervous about is being in the room. And, and what if Bob or David turns to me and says, okay, do you have a joke for this? I don't think I can do that. Um, but I think I'll be okay if I can just like go in my office and just write sketches and by myself in privacy. And what is totally bizarre is I became the opposite person. The first day I was really nervous and I think all of the new hires were and Bob and David threw us right into the deep end and we're like, all right, so here's, let's read this sketch and let's talk about it. And so Bob goes, okay, what do we think? And everyone's very silent because no one wants to be the first person to talk. And I was just like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> I was just like, okay, well, I think this. And I just, I, something about my brain is, is like, I'm very opinionated about certain things and I have to get it out, you know? And so when I read that, I was like, oh, I bet I know how to fix this. And so I said, okay, here's what we do. <laughs> and I just, and, and that's, that's what kind of made me indispensable to them is I was the guy who always had an opinion right or wrong on how to fix something. And, um, you know, I think in the, in the Mr. Show book, Bill Odenkirk talks about like, you know, Scott is very opinionated and it's very bizarre to me that I thought I was going to be the guy who kept to myself when I became the guy who essentially was like always at their side, you know, giving opinions. That's fantastic. And so you're in there, you're doing it and you're making just so you know, minimum wage writers on these shows make around $2,700 a week, which is about $2,700 more a week than he was making. Right. So I came, I, 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 my unemployment ran out literally the week before we started. Um, and, and I had been on unemployment because I, I had been a waiter for 10 years and, quit in order to work on a like an internet only show that got canceled like a month and a half in and then bob kept saying i think you're going to be a writer on the show you're going to be a writer on the show so i went on unemployment and then at a certain point i was like bob my unemployment is out i gotta i gotta know and he's like you're in you're in and so to have that 2700 a week was so much money to me at the same time, I didn't keep track of it, and I didn't realize that a lot of weeks you're not getting paid, you know? Like, uh, like you're hired for a minimum of weeks. Yeah, there's certain shows how they hire people, and it's changed over the years. But if you're doing the nightly show, let's say with Larry Wilmore, you'll sign a 13-week contract for around $4,000 a week, sometimes 4500 depending if they want to stretch it a little bit, if there's somebody they really want. And the 13 weeks might have like two or three break weeks that you still get paid on on that show. But when he was doing Mr. Show, it's the opposite. Where you're hired for 13 weeks, but it's a five-month process. And there are weeks that you're not getting paid for that you're expected to work. Um, and that you could, if you were a jerk, say, hey, I'm not getting paid this week. I'm not working. Um, and yet why would you ever do that <laughs> because you're on your dream job and you're you know like i said i love this show and i want to make it good so i never kept track of the weeks i was getting paid or anything all i know is we wrapped the show i started it in in march or something and we wrapped in december and um i went to the atm and i never paid attention to my balance and i went to the atm um after 
the week we wrapped and my money was all gone (laughs) 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 and it had all been blown on magazines and movie tickets and cds and it just was all gone i was like oh god what do i do now (laughs) and what did you do i uh bj porter and i had written a film script before we started the show just on spec that we had been talking about since the college days that um there was just this idea he had of it was a really good idea i don't even want to say it because hopefully we're still going to make it someday but um that film script was was i remember i showed it to a bunch of people i showed it to my family and they were like "Eh, eh." and i showed it to my girlfriend at the time and she was like i mean i don't think this is very good but she worked for the head of propaganda films and she said i'll put it in the to read pile and get coverage for you and she put it in the to read pile and it was the one script out of that whole pile that they said we would recommend making this <laughs> and she was like i don't really she she's like i'm not a comedy fan so she was like more into dramas <laughs> so she's like i guess i just didn't realize it was a good script and from that i got a manager and um so essentially when mr show ended i just got into a period for a long time of writing um film scripts and re- mainly rewrites where someone would uh, the original writer would write a script that they liked the idea of but it didn't come out right and so they would then get someone to rewrite the script and that became what i would do for the next 10 years hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business that's why i'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. In television, if you write an original television pilot that gets on the air, you create it. And the network decides, you know what, you're not the writer for us, or the star of the show says, you're not the writer for us, and you leave the show. You are on the show for the rest of perpetuity, and you get paid for the rest of perpetuity. Right. In movies, it's a different story, where if you write a movie, and it's a great movie, let's say like Ride Along, Greg Coolidge had it for eight years, wrote it as a white buddy comedy. Mm-hmm. And eight years later, they brought in two people to rewrite it, and they got the credit on the film, and Greg did not because they rewrote about 75 yeah. or 80% of it. And so in film, you can have films that you see that's unbelievable. There's like people have been taken off over and over again. They pay new writers, and sometimes they'll use the credits of the original writers and the new writers but the bottom line is this film doesn't have a system where the writer is protected forever. Yeah, they they essentially, from what I understand, the WGA reads 
every single draft you have to number all of these drafts and they'll have to read 20 30 drafts of a film in order to figure out how to give credit and and um i've heard stories about directors like directors getting the new draft in from the writers and then just literally putting their name on the title page and making that a new draft just so they can yeah. get credit. You know, it's it's a very weird system. And the other side of the system is when the writers are protected sometimes or the studio just feels like, eh, don't want to hire two new writers or one new writer to put the vision forward in a better way. What they'll do is a think tank and they'll hire comedians Normally, about eight to ten of them, they pay them around a minimum of, I'm going to say five to seventy-five hundred for a yeah. week. They sit them all in a room, so oh, they week. so so they spend like about fifty thousand dollars, sometimes as much as a hundred thousand dollars, and they're just in a room and they're just constantly writing jokes for every character, figuring out how to put it. It's less about the story and more about how to make it funnier in the comedy thing. Sort of like horrible bosses was an example of this where they used a tremendous amount of young writers, Whitney Cummings being one of them, put them in a room and made it funnier. Yeah, I did that a couple of times and I I don't think I was I don't think my mind was right to do it because when I would do it, um I would I would read a script and go, Oh, here's I wouldn't just give them jokes. I would say, here's everything that's wrong with it that you need to fix <laughs> and I would go the structure of this film is all wrong. Here's what you do with it. And I would like lay out a new structure. And I think in their minds, they were like, we're just paying this guy for jokes. Like we already have the structure. <laughs> Over deliver. So, well, I think I was under delivering in that. I think if I were, I was just asked to do one literally yesterday that I was here and I couldn't do it. And I was, it was the first time I've been asked to do one in a long time, mainly because I've been too busy. But at the same time, the few times I've done it, I've done it for, I remember Meet the Fockers was definitely one um, where I was really advocating changing a big part of that stru the structure of that film. And I don't think any of us pitched jokes because we got sidetracked by my big like, here's what you do. And then I saw the film and it was exactly the same <laughs> as when I read it and it worked and it was funny. And it was like, oh man, I shouldn't, I, I should just do jokes next time. But I did it for Looney Tunes back in action, I remember. And uh, New York Minute was one that I have a crazy story about where the director, um, this is the Olsen Twins movie, mm -hmm. and the director was in Vancouver prepping the, the film and she was on um, video conference. And we this is one of these it was i remember is the most i've ever been paid for amount of time i've done something um because it was five thousand dollars for the day and um i went in and we we met at 10 and from about 10 to eleven thirty, we pitched jokes and stuff that could happen in set pieces and then suddenly the video must have frozen for the director but did not freeze for us so she assumed it probably froze for us and was just frozen so we could hear everything she was saying, and she turned to her assistant and was like, this is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, these ideas are terrible. We're not going to do anything that <laughs> these people are saying, but, you know, I mean, it's interesting to see this process, isn't it? And the producers who were in the room with us went <gasps> and, like, shut off the video thing and said, okay, let's take 10. And then we all left the room, and they must have, like, <laughs> you know, told the director what happened. We came back in. 
and everyone was like, okay, well, uh, I think we got it here. So let's, let's break. And it was like, I was paid $5,000 for an hour and a half <laughs> to do nothing. One of my biggest piece of advice is never talk about anything in a public restroom. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's similar to when a Skype freezes, anything just never. Yeah. So, but let's pretend you made the mistake and you were the director and then it broke and the people told you on the other side, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but they heard everything you saw and we've got to get back on with them. Tell me when the Skype comes back on what you would say as a director. I think there, there's only one thing you can do which is apologize but i don't know how i i honestly don't know how it's it's a pretty untenable situation i don't know how you salvage the 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 session i think the joke is let me finish (laughs) oh okay you didn't let me finish (laughs) what i was saying is i'm never going to use these jokes in my personal life but for a movie no i it you know to her credit, the director uh, like <laughs> called us all personally afterward. What was weird was was no one ever admitted that it had happened. Everyone acted like it didn't happen, and the director called and was like, "Hey, I just wanted to left a message. I just wanted to thank you personally for doing that session. It was really great." But no one, no one ever said, "Hey, sorry about that." Uh, you know how it is. Anyway, I'm so glad you came in. You know, everyone just acted like it didn't happen, which was. Not the way to go, in my opinion. I think you just own up to it and go, I fucked up. I'm sorry. The first time you went back to your apartment, you sat down, cracked open whatever you cracked open and drank it or smoked it and said, I did it. I'm doing it. I'm never looking back. I'm never going to have to do anything else again. I am in this business to stay. I am making money in this business to stay, and nothing's going to stop me. You know, I I was such a big fan of Mr. Show that, um, honestly, when I got the job on that, I felt like I'd made it already. I felt like, oh, wow. Um, you know, I knew comedy history, and I knew Monty Python and the Kids in the Hall and, and all of that, and I knew that Mr. Show was something special, and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm actually part of comedy history. Um I think I th- I think the reverse of that is actually maybe more interesting of once I got on Mr. Show I kind of thought I was unstoppable and we wrote the Mr. Show movie and I wrote the Tenacious D movie and there was a certain time in 2000 where I learned the opposite lesson which was you don't get everything you want in show business because the Mr. Show movie we filmed it and it flopped spectacularly and uh, the Tenacious D movie, we were removed and um, they ended up not making that film. And that those both happened at the same time in, in practically the same month. And that was, I once I got a Mr. Show, I was like, I'm unstoppable. Nothing's stopping me. Everything I want, we're going to do. I, you know, I, sure, I didn't win the Emmy for, for Mr. Show, but whatever we do now is going to be up for Emmys. It's going to be heralded as the next great comedy thing we're gonna make several mr show movies i'm gonna offshoot on that to starring in my own movies you know just like i had this sort of plan based on you know performers that had come before me especially monty python and when it didn't happen and i suddenly said oh holy shit no one gets 
what they want <laughs> in this business. I thought that I thought I was owed all this. Um, that that was interesting to me, I think, and that and that gave me more lessons than just kind of feeling like I was on top. You know, it gave me more lessons of like the Tenacious D movie that that we wrote um, was such a great calling card. It's a really funny script and got me a lot of work. But one of the lessons I learned was three years later, my agent was saying, "You know what? Uh, everyone's read this already. It's a little stale. You gotta you gotta make something new. You gotta write something new that people like." Um, you know, the between two ferns thing, it's great, but you know, it, it'll be your calling card for just a little while. You got to come up with something new. The podcast is great, but after a certain point, people are not going to care anymore and you got to do something new. So you sort of have to keep giving people reasons to enjoy your work and keep hustling. You can't just sit there and go, I've made it and I'm never going to not work again. You have to keep hustling at it. Six degrees of separation now. I'm going to okay. mention a name. Great. You can say a word, a sentence, a story, anything you want, just whatever comes to mind. Okay. Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell, um, big, you know, fan of his. I will say the f- what's interesting about comedy to me is, is like performers have to teach you have to teach you their rhythms before you can, it sort of clicks and you go, oh, I get it. The same thing happened with Reggie Watts for me the first couple of times I saw him I was like is this guy even doing comedy I can't even figure this out and then the third time I went oh I understand now this is all improvisational it's all off the top of his head oh great this is genius same thing with Will Ferrell in the sense of like the first few SNL episodes he was on I was like "Eh, I don't think I like this guy (laughs) which is so insane that he's you know one of the greatest comedy performers on that show ever Um, but um, you know super nice guy I wish he would have done the tv show (laughs) but he never did uh but the funny the uh you know between two ferns we did with him was really funny and i enjoyed working with him jennifer lawrence she was like the coolest person that did between two ferns that day we essentially we did the oscar specials of the between two ferns um when there was an oscar luncheon uh one day where all of the nominees had lunch and part of their promotional duties because after you do that lunch, you then have to go through like a line of press. And one of the things they could do was go into the Between Two Ferns room and tape some some of Between Two Ferns. And we had sort of scheduled everyone by, you know, in 20 minute increments. And Jennifer Lawrence was scheduled and she came in and then there was some sort of mix up where someone else like Sally Field or someone um, was late and we were going to have to push Jennifer Lawrence. And here she is like, you know, one of the bigger movie stars on the planet. And she was just like, Oh, I'm cool. I'll just watch. And was like super chill and just like watched two other people jump the line in front of her and was like laughing in the back. And I was just like, wow, she's so down to earth. Um, you know, and that's my impression of, you know, being with her for an hour, you know, (laughs) but it it seemed like that to me. 2000 year old man. My favorite, I remember my parents, once I said that I was getting into comedy, um, you know how, I don't know if you had this experience with your parents or relatives, any interest you have, they try to give you a Christmas gift based on it or a, you know, a birthday gift based on it. Magicians get the magic set. Like, oh, you're interested in comedy now? Okay. Um, So they gave me the, um, I think it was a box set called the American Comedy Box Set or something of four... I remember it was tapes. They they didn't even get me CDs, but the and and there was one 
12 minute track of the 2000 year old man and it was a pretty spotty box set of stuff that I was like, Ugh, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. And then I heard that and it was like, oh my God, this is so funny. And to know that Mel Brooks is, um, for the most part, improvising that, it was just a revelation to me. And so I went out and got all the records and I studied it and I just became like a Mel Brooks fanatic. And it just really, that's, I think, one of the biggest influences on Comedy Bang Bang, especially the podcast that there is, where you can hear the... The, there's a certain something I think, uh, you know, in like uh, flamenco music, they call it like duende or something, which is like a certain undes- indescribable something that makes something interesting. And when you can hear that in Comedy Bang Bang in the 2000 year old man, I think that's what people really like about it. Sarah Silverman. Sarah's great. A good friend. Um, known her ever since I started doing comedy in 95. I go to her house to watch all of the award shows if uh, neither of us are working on them. Um, and she usually trots out. Uh, she had a blue dress designed for her for one year when she was going to the Emmys. That was such a disaster. She like the designer. She 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 gave the designer a bunch of stuff she wanted and the designer took their name off of the dress and so she will at a certain point in the evening when we're watching the award show she'll go into her room and come back out in the dress and we'll pose and it's such a disaster andy samberg andy's like the funniest guy i know uh, like a uh, what's important i think too is he's a genuine genuine person and one of the more um like kind of sensitive human beings as well that i know uh but works so hard and i think that the, when we did the emmys this last year no one involved in the emmys could really believe how hard he was working because i think they're used to hosts who you know because they're busy or what in my opinion maybe half acid and Andy was there from 9 a.m. till late at night every single day um, reading new sketches, writing new sketches, learning dance routines. Like he, the, the guy works incredibly hard, and I think that that's the only way you can be as successful as him. Jack Black. Jack's cool. Jack, I mean, we... It's funny. He he uh he was doing Tenacious D when BJ and I were doing the fun bunch and he and Kyle talk about how they they were doing it like two months before we started and they heard about us like, Hey, do you hear these guys are ripping off your act? And they were like <laughs> who's this fun bunch ripping off our act and then they came to see us and we're like they're nothing like us (laughs) they don't do songs what do they do and um so jack jack is really funny i've known him ever since he was just like this kind of weirdo who would hang out at parties that everyone but everyone always knew his like talent was undeniable um everyone was just always like if you put him in front of a or yeah in front of a camera you knew you would get gold one of my favorite words undeniable steve carell Steve Carell, I don't really know that well. Um, my wife worked with him. She's on an episode of The Office um, where she played um, one of his Benihana girlfriends. Um, that was like her first big break. And she said he was like a super cool dude. And then I did that Between Two Ferns with him, which was a great experience. I think he didn't know. We pitched the idea to him that he was going to s- slam Zach, and he didn't really get it. And, and then... We started doing it and he went, oh, he goes, give me those jokes. And we'd written a ton of jokes about Zach. And he was like, 
I get it now, and then like destroyed. It's probably the best episode of Between Two Ferns. Goofy. <laughs> I, you bring this up because I played Goofy at Disneyland um, when I was, I believe, 17 and 18. That was the worst job I ever had. Um, I was Goofy and Br'er Bear and um, Captain Hook in an incredibly hot summer in Anaheim. And uh, they now have fans, I believe, in those costumes. But at the time, they didn't. So they were the hot. it was the hottest, uh, worst job I've ever had. Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber, I just met him the one time that he did Between Two Ferns and, you know, um, seemed uh, alternatingly really down to earth and quiet and kind of maybe oppressed by his fame and uh, alternatingly also kind of maybe a little... <laughs> a little too cocky uh, for it. You know, there were there were a couple of things that happened that were, you know, not what we wanted to happen on the shoot, but, um, you know, made a good video. Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. David Cross is, you know, what's weird is I always had the impression that Bob was the nice down-to-earth one and David was the asshole. And then as you get to know him, David kind of reveals himself to be the really nice like guy that you want to hang out in the bar with and Bob is actually just like a workhorse who is nice as well but not someone you go like necessarily go hang out with because he's always in his mind like I gotta get back to my kids I gotta get back to my kids you know but David really warms up once you get to know him Hot Saucerman (laughs) Hot Saucerman is kind of my nickname it I'm trying to recall how it started but for a while on the podcast, I was mispronouncing my name. Um, how do you, <laughs> how do because, you figure up the character of mispronouncing your well, name? Well, <laughs> here's the deal. I have this kind of name that one when people read it, it's constantly like, what is this, Ackerman, Ackerman? I was talking to Malin Ackerman, who's on Comedy Bang Bang in the next 10 episodes, and she has the same thing. Like, everyone calls her Ackerman, and they call me Ackerman, you know? And it's like, it was just kind of my my thing of like taking back the night in regards to my name of like, look, you, no one knows how to pronounce it. I'm just going to mispronounce it all the time. And so I remember I would just kind of like stumble over my name or say the wrong names. And, um, uh, when on for the TV show, the reason that we do that on the TV show is because the director happened to watch. He was like, if I'm going to direct your show, I want to watch you do the podcast once. And I was doing the whole weird name thing. And he goes, I got a good idea. You're going to introduce yourself, and we're going to have a super with a different fake name every time. And I was like, all right, let's see. And it's become like a big thing. Amy Poehler. Amy is great. She is, um, you know, just hands down one of the funniest people that I've ever met. Um, She just is like a force. She's like, you can't take your eyes off of her. Um, I, I got to know her through the UCB when I was producing the comedy death ray show there. And, um, you know, I would do ask cat monologues with her and just, you know, uh, one of the, one of the funniest people. I, I remember when we were doing the Emmys this year, we were like, we had a bit that we wanted to do with Andy and Amy. And we were, we were, we heard like Amy can't do rehearsal <laughs> and, and we were forced with this, do we cut the bit? And we're just like, you know, in, if things are going wrong, cut to Amy Poehler. That's a good rule for for doing an award show. So we kept the bit in. It was really funny, you know, even, even though they had never rehearsed it. Aziz Ansari. 
Aziz is funny. I got to know him like when he first moved to LA. He had been doing obviously stand up in New York, and I think they'd been doing Human Giant. And um, you know, I I feel like I've known him since he was a young kid. You know, but I I also feel like I was just you know I'm not that much older than him, maybe a decade or something. But um, yeah, it's it's he's one of those people where. You know, I feel like Chris Rock has this with their delivery. It's like it doesn't even matter what they're saying. They can make you laugh. You know, it's it's I think Chris Rock said something about how a stand up comedian has to be one part preacher. And I feel like he and Aziz have that of like convincing people to laugh. It's almost like a steamroller. It's like overpowering just how their delivery is so, so funny. Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, you know, um, I think he's, it's so funny. Someone asked me once, like, who is, who's out there in show business you're not a personal friend of that you feel like you could be a personal friend of? And I was like, you know, I have met Seth five times. I feel like he, in different circumstances, he could be a personal friend of mine, (laughs) but I just never have, you know, worked with him to such an extent that I've ever gotten to hang out with him. But like he did the comedy bang bang TV show, the first season when it was, it was close friends of mine were on the couch and he was one of the people who was just like, I I was chit chatting with him and I was like, so what are you up to? And he was like, Oh my God, I'm so busy. I I'm doing this and this and this, and I have no time to do anything. And I go, what are you doing here? And he goes, but this is cool. This is fun. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wow, that's a way to live your life. Like, do the fun things, you know? Jerry Seinfeld. I have never met him. Um, have Was really, really into his work in the, in the uh, 80s when I was in high school. I, you know, just there, he was the gold standard and, you know, still is of stand-up comedians. Very into it. When I heard he was doing Seinfeld, a TV show, um... I was one of the rabid fans who was there from episode one. You know, he did four episodes that first year. And um, and he was almost doing like David Mamady type material on that show as well. Um, and he was a big influence on me. And I was just like sold. Like I, I thought those first four episodes were so funny. And I was like into it from the jump. And so, you know, and, and I, I think he's someone who's who you can really respect as like, you know, he's a guy who worked super, super hard, you know, Brad Pitt. Um, again, just met him the day we did between two ferns, but like came in, made everyone feel comfortable, talked about what a big fan he was of the show. And then, um, we didn't have a lot of time to film with him and not as much time as we normally do, but he was so funny that, um, as little time as he had, we were just like, yeah, we got it. And then it turned out to be a really funny video. Last one, Zach Galifianakis. Zach is a really great person. Um, I think it is interesting to me to see someone who is thrust into fame. He's not thrust into it. I mean, he, he, you know, he certainly took roles and, but he's a guy who does it for the, for the, for the love of comedy. You know what I mean? He's not a guy who does it because he wants to be famous. He hates, the stuff that comes along with fame. Um, I've never seen anyone like actively turn down more stuff than him, but I think it's important to, to see that because he keeps it pure, you know, and he doesn't care about the trappings of, am I invited to parties or, you know, I was at a party the other day at San Diego comic-con. It was the EW party and not to talk shit on it. Cause I'd like to go again, maybe someday, but I was sort of talking, I was talking to someone who similarly was there and I was like I was 
it was too packed and I was like, why, what happened in my childhood? Why is it so important that I be invited to this? Why, why was I like looking forward to this? And why did I look at it and go, oh good, I was invited to this. And why did I come and I'm sitting around and I can't talk to anyone and, and it's too crowded. I was like, why, why, why was this so important to me? And you have to remember, you have to remember stuff like that. Like Zach is, is a guy who is not enticed by any of that. And you have to remember that you're getting into the business to do the work and not to, not for the trappings of, am I going to be invited to the party where all the starlets are at? You know, it's, it's, it's really inspiring to watch how he lives his life. Your greatest holy shit moment story of your entire career. The one that would be the highlight chapter of your book. I mean, I, I certainly think I've already gone into the Obama thing a lot, which is, you know, I think probably one of the biggest, especially, you know, we were asked to come back to the White House again and um, meet him after that um, in a in a sort of celebration of the fact that the Affordable Care Act got um, got through and, and in celebration of all the people who helped along that. And, and that was one that I was able to take my wife to um, because she wasn't able to go to the actual um, taping. Um, and the, what I, what I like about that was it was, it was a uh, 200 people in the white house kind of milling about. There were a lot of people who helped out with that, but the um, advisor to the president came by to a few of us and said, hey, the president would like to thank you personally because not everyone was was getting to actually talk to him. And so uh, Adam Scott and I were pulled aside and they said the president would like to talk to you personally. And um, I looked over at my wife and the president was like, I'm sorry, but, you know, significant others can't come. And I was just like, oh, man. And he's like, I'm really sorry, but, you know, it's just got to be a one-on-one. So I went into the other room where we were sort of lined up. And um, unbeknownst to me, my wife was, like, in the bathroom, like, tearing up. <laughs> like, she was, it was such a bummer for her. And suddenly the advisor came over and said, okay, I asked. And she can come in. She can come in. Where is she? And I would, I don't know. Where is she? And I started texting her furiously, but the cell reception's not good in the White House. And so I couldn't get a hold of her. I was calling her. And finally they found her and um, she got to come in and we were the last people in line. And there's just the picture of uh, the president and the first lady and my wife and me, just all of us arm in arm. <laughs> and we both have looks on our face like, holy shit, I can't believe this. Um, I haven't like posted that anywhere. That seems like something you would like post on Instagram or whatever, but I've just kept it in our office. You know, it's like definitely one of those things that, I sometimes someone someone will say to me occasionally on on Twitter or something like you've had the weirdest career <laughs> and you know from like interviewing you too and you know like the president and stuff like that and so I'll just keep stuff like that around to remind myself like I can't believe what uh, the kind of stuff that's happened to me your proudest moment in show business I think you know you spend all a show business trying to like get stuff or get the acclaim or get you know I remember when we didn't win the Emmy um for Mr. Show I was like well it's I'm gonna feel good when I when I get that Emmy finally um and then then I won my first Emmy and I was like oh all right (laughs) it was like not a big deal in a way I don't know like so so I sort of learned to kind of 
It wasn't like I won that and was like, ooh, yes, this is the culmination of a career. It was just like, oh, here's this trophy now that I have to keep. I think we were going to, we were writing a sketch for Comedy Bang Bang about um, a person who wins awards because they need more doorstops <laughs> <laughs> because they kept expanding their house and adding additions. And they were like, well, I got more doors. I need more doorstops. Um, I honestly think that the, the, the proudest I think I've been was when I was hired on Mr. Show. I think it was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm part of something that I consider to be one of the greatest shows um, in comedy history. So I, it, it, it all goes back to the beginning for me, and which is why I wanted to return to, to help them on their recent show. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. I mean, I think I mentioned it before. It was that double whammy of the Mr. Show movie and the Tenacious D movie. It just was like, I remember even with the Tenacious D movie, I had, I had turned down and being paid for an extra step of the writing because I was like, oh, well, when the movie gets made, that money's owed to me anyway, so we'll just, you know, whatever. And then suddenly it didn't get... I w that's the mindset I was in of like, oh, the movie's getting made, uh, Mr. Show movie's coming out and people are going to love it. So that double whammy of just both of those things being um, terrible experiences just shocked me and put me in a stupor that I think I had to climb out of and I had to just kind of say okay now I'm gonna do something new and not I'm not gonna get what I want in in life and I'm gonna have to just kind of do it myself how did you climb out of it you know I really just started doing stuff that I wanted to do that made me happy um you know I went 10 years or so writing rewriting scripts and and most of them not getting made and Shark Tale was the only one that I think I worked on that actually went up on the screen and it's no great movie or whatever. So I was, I, when I started, first of all, started Comedy Death Ray, started producing the, the live show Comedy Death Ray, which I did for 10 years. Um, that was a big, great creative release and I did it just for the love and never got any money out of it. And then when I started doing the podcast, that was just like, hey, I miss performing. Let me get out there and just do a podcast and let's just do it. And there was never any plan for it. There was never any like, I think that we could, you know, uh, take this podcast and make it into a TV show. That was that would have been insane to me. The fact it turned into a TV show was never part of the plan. It was just something that fell into my lap. I was just doing it for fun. And I think I think when you do things for fun, that's when good things can come. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, you start a podcast like I started this one. You start it, and before you start, the day before you launch it, there's no listeners. Yeah. And then it builds and something happens if people like it. And <laughs> that's the thing. You put stuff out there, and you know right away, like the Mr. Show movie. Right. Look, you did everything. A hundred people are working on this thing. Another hundred are putting it together. And you all look at it, and you're like, hey, this is going to go great, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The podcast, you just put it out there. What was the episode or the week or the time? How long had you been doing it before something happened where you're like, holy shit, we're kicking ass? I think I think I, I separate that between creatively and, and audience-wise because I kind of always had an audience. Like, I, I had... I had an audience of like 2,000 people I knew would listen to something I put out, right? So the podcast from week one, I had like 2,000 people that would listen to it. So I was always fine in that regard, and it just kind of grew. Creatively, for me, it was like around episode eight or something. I can't remember when we had uh, Andy Daly on the show. And up to that episode, it was pretty much a straightforward interview program. And um, it was also a little like where comedians would be on a talk show where I would like lead them into their bits, you know? And, um, Andy was on and he was doing a character that I knew pretty well because I'd booked him on the live show a lot and I knew the beats of it very well. And so I started sort of like trying to improvise around the beats. And he was a character who one of his beats was that he wanted to buy a very heavy trench coat so he could commit suicide by walking into the ocean and it would drag him down (laughs) And that normally in the bit was just like an aside. And I started talking to him about the coat a lot. I was like, got very fixated on where he bought the coat, what, <laughs> what style of coat it was. And Andy was really, really funny talking about this. Like, why are you asking me about the coat all the time? And then he would give me a lot of improvise, a lot of details about it. And I remember leaving that show going, oh, wow, that was fun. That felt like the 2000 year old man to me where that like, it wasn't like kind of a canned, like I know all the beats to this and I'm just setting you up. That that was what felt like the show to me. And that's that's to me where I think Comedy Bang Bang really became a unique thing rather than just like an interview show. Last question. You've seen so many different performers come up from when you were starting. You've seen so many different people in all areas of our business who are doing so many different things in the entertainment business. And so what advice would you give for the young performer, the young person out there who lives in some area like Orange County and is trying to figure out their way, what they're doing, and how to get them to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? I think, you know, number one, I said it before, you just, first of all, you have to move. You you have, it, it, even though I I lived 45 minutes south in Orange County, it seemed impenetrable to me the idea of moving up to LA well I don't know anyone there I don't know anyone in show business I don't how would how would I even do it how would I break in how would I give my thing to someone in order to have them read it it just seems daunting and it seems I remember when I first went away to college too it was that kind of thing of like wait I I was accepted to a an arts college I won't know anyone there. And the fact that one of my best friends went was the only reason I went ahead and went up there. You know, it's very scary, I think, to people to, like, throw themselves into the unknown. But you just have to do it. And you, 
you can't think about how you're going to get into the business. You just have to like throw yourself into it and study and, you know, take classes or constantly write and show your friends stuff. I mean, you know, when BJ Porter and I did the fun bunch stuff, yeah, we started at the comedy show, but the, or the comedy store, but the part that isn't paid attention to a lot is we rented theaters and we put up our sketch shows and, and made them free and gave away free beer in order for people to come. Um, and we made it a, a social thing, at least, for people to come <laughs> to see the show, hoping that they would laugh. And, you know, I remember at one point I, I, uh, we had written a 75-minute musical that we put up. Um, and we put it up for one night and Brian Posehn was in it and um, Paula Tompkins and a bunch of people. And we put it up only one night and we rehearsed it for months and we did it one night and Bob Odenkirk was in the crowd. And after we did it, he was like, oh, that was incredible. But why did you do it? He's like, why? Why would you do that? I mean, no, you know, it's sold out. Sure. But like the industry, no one from the industry is here. Like and you're not doing it again? And I was like, I don't know. We did it for fun. And he was like, why? And in my head, I'm going, because you're here, Bob, and you're going to give me a, a, a job on your show, I hope. you know. But, but to me, that's the part that people don't pay attention to is, is you really have to go out there and hustle and constantly be doing it. And I put up a – I performed somewhere every single week, and I put up a sketch show like every month. And constantly hustling and out there and trying to get people to see your stuff. And that's the only way it can happen. Um, you can't just sit around in your apartment and go, how come no one's looking at my stuff? Or how come, you know, how can I put my stuff into the right person's hands? You just got to make stuff. Scott Ackerman, you were amazing oh, today. Barry, thank you, you were really, 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 really inspirational. Thank you, Barry. That's nice of you to say. I hope you know how sincere I am. You know, it's odd I can share this with you. Permission to speak freely? Per granted. I've never said this on a podcast. When you walked in the room today, everybody gets vibes from people. You walk in every room, you go to a pitch, you don't know who's going to be what, how they're feeling, what's going on. When you walked in the room today, honestly, I felt like, Oh man, I get the vibe that this person's gone through a lot this week. He's done so many things and he's here because he's fulfilling the commitment and he's here because he knows how badly I want him, but he's here. And I felt that energy wrong or right. And I said to myself, I know if I can just sit down with this person, I know if he can just start talking about his journey, I know he's going to realize how special his life really is and how much it means to oh my people gosh i think one of the things i'm most proud of this week is that i think i accomplished the goal of being the facilitator of helping you share your story with people <laughs> and i know they're gonna love it a lot thank you so so much thank you barry it was a pleasure to talk to you and mainly i think what you're reacting to is i got new glasses and they make everything very fuzzy for me <laughs> and i'm just getting used to them I, it's my third day with glasses and i i i find my uh walking around is very difficult well you look very distinguished <laughs> thank you very much
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money, drop that 
fancy call All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.